Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. I feel like this movie is a movie that we've been creeping towards in one way or another because it comes up in every other episode. Right. When you announced that we were doing an episode on this, someone on Twitter said, now maybe Sarah will stop talking about Goodfellas all the time. And to that person and anyone else who has had that thought, I have this to say, I have not yet begun to talk about Goodfellas. <laughs> Even after this episode. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Goodfellas is a movie that I could see us covering again. Oh, yeah. We could do an annual Goodfellas episode for 12 <laughs> to 15 years. We certainly could. But we have this one right now with uh, Sarah Weinman. Yes. So we had Sarah on because we were like, we need a real true crime pro. We have the best circle of friends. Yeah, Sarah is wonderful. She is a true crime expert. She's a wonderful writer. Mm-hmm. And she has a book coming out called Scoundrel. How a convicted murderer persuaded the women who loved him, the conservative establishment, and the courts to set him free. So as you can imagine, it is a roller coaster. Our show is really funny in a way because (laughs) when someone has something to promote, the format is you have someone come on and they talk about the thing that they're to promote in their life and all that stuff. And we're like, no, no, do homework. No. (laughs) Yes. Talk about Goodfellas. Well, people love talking about movies, Alex. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's fun. It gives us something to talk about aside from our lives. And yet we can realize things about our lives. Yeah, we got a good little thing here, I would say. Hey, Sarah, I was uh, yeah. I was cleaning out some stuff or looking through some stuff. And I found a letter and I'm sharing this because like people, people ask us about our friendship sometimes to listen to the show and sort of like what the background is. They're like, how can two friends be so brilliant and yet so (laughs) hilarious? And we're like, well, let's reflect. We struck gold. (laughs) Yeah. So I found a letter from you. Like I was looking at it and I was trying to make sense of the addresses Mm -hmm. and it's from 2011. That's so great. It was unopened. And I was going to do a whole bit where I opened it here, but I've already opened it. When two Tauruses have a podcast, we could have done this for media, but it's for us. And I opened it when I felt like it. I love what I found in here so much. (laughs) This is probably within the first six months of us knowing each other, I would say. Yes, because we met. I remember we first started communicating in December of 2010. Oh, two two months then. Yeah, so I would have been 22 years old when I wrote this. I was fucking nuts at this time. Like I was like <laughs> I was like staying with this girl I met at a festival who like lived on a compound in Allegheny County, New I think it was New York. Obviously. Guns and like a like literal trash bags full of illegal weed. It was a time. And that's when we met. Well, thank you so much for being my pen pal. <laughs> that's great. Cause I was in grad school. <laughs> holy shit that's fantastic taking the bus it was really great and we were just like getting to know each other it was super fun we get to know each other because of tumblr it was fantastic so this is what i found Mm -hmm. there are 10 
index cards, uh-huh. it says an important survey at the mm-hmm. beginning. And then it's just 10 questions <laughs> where you ask the questions and then underneath have an opportunity for me to answer. And you never did until today. And it's so much better today. Someone said on Twitter, like, how could you not? And it's like, I like, did you hear how I just described my life? Right. <laughs> I was living on a fucking compound. <laughs> you know what? You kept the letter. I did. I was like, I should open that at some point. So there you go. You were like, future Alex will deal with it. And then here we are. So the actually like a handful of these questions have a lot of gravity now. Oh, boy. What is the next and final frontier? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Could Sarah Palin ever actually become president? Oh, my God. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Well... We got our answer, didn't we? This one is so good because it says egg hard or soft boiled. I love how this is the question that came after the Sarah Palin one. There's a TikTok challenge right now where the audio essentially explains that like dogs intuitively know that eggs are something that they should be careful and sensitive with. Mm. If you put an Mm. egg in a dog's mouth, it'll be careful. Mm. And I did it with Wheezy to see if it worked and I wasn't filming it. Mm -hmm. But we have slippery floors and Wheezy has two bad knees. Oh, Wheezy. Wheezy took the took the egg like it was the responsibility of a lifetime. Just (laughs) took it in her sweet little dumb mouth and then carefully jaunted off. And then her legs gave out from under her and she fell and smashed the egg on the floor. Oh, that's what being a person feels like to me. And then just looked so ashamed. Oh, Wheezy, it's okay. So ashamed and then just finally... Finally licked the egg off the floor. I loved it. Yeah, it's just an egg. It's okay. There's no baby in there. I love this one. Are bean boots just the greatest things ever or what? (laughs) I stand by that. They are. (laughs) A thing about being on main social media is like once in a while, you'll become alerted by all your friends on Twitter or wherever that the bean truck is driving somewhere. (laughs) No, there was a bean truck. There's a boot truck, yeah. You should write an article called The Beans of Egypt, Maine, and it's about bean boots. <laughs> also, this has been an ad for bean boots. I love them. Send me new bean boots. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, send Sarah some new bean boots, <laughs> guys. Uh, and then and then one more. I, I love this one, too. This one, this one was actually really incredible to read, considering this was written much closer to... Tom Cruise's couch moment than now mm. and you just covered this with Willa on your wrong about. Mm-hmm. If this feels like a question of that reality. Okay. Is reality TV necessary? If so, why? Right, because what this question implies is that there still remains a world where we exist separately from reality TV, which we obviously don't. <laughs> at least now. In which people don't turn their friendships into a podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's so true. (laughs) Sarah, I'm so excited. I'll post these questions somewhere if people want to check them out because they're fantastic. They're so good. I'm so happy that you found this. This is so earnest. I really like this young lady. It's beautiful. I would have loved to have been able to open them then, but I'm I'm so grateful we got this. It's like opening a time capsule. Yeah. Oh, that is so great. Oh man. Well, let's go uh let's go we'll watch some people get stabbed. <laughs> let's go count the blue coats and robes that symbolize the Virgin Mary. <laughs> 
You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you so much for all of your support. We appreciate you so much. It is made possible with your support by way of Patreon. Patreon.com slash you are good. Or at patreon.com slash you are good, you get uh, bonus episodes, which is a lot of fun for us and I, I think maybe for you. Last bonus episode we covered, and just like that, and that was remarkably popular. I was shocked actually at how many people signed up for the and just like that episode. Uh, the next one will be about the Titanic dead. Thank you, everyone, for making this thing happen. We really appreciate you. You are good. It's also made possible with support by Knack Factory. K-N-A-C-K Factory, which is a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine, though does work throughout these here United States. So if you need that kind of work done, if you need videos made, if you need things animated, if you need uh, uh, audio produced, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. There's a playlist that accompanies this episode. We have playlists that accompany all of our episodes, a little Spotify playlist you can find in the show notes, songs that we think about when we think about this episode, songs that we think about when we think about this movie. You can find that for your ears in our show notes. Finally, we have a Discord server. Folks talk about all sorts of different stuff over from the Discord server, just ideas, feelings, places to talk about episodes, places to hear announcements, all that stuff. If you are a Discord person or you are Discord curious, you can find the link in the show notes. Stay tuned. In this episode, we have a Carolyn Kendrick, original Carolyn, is our producer, of course. She's our music director. This week, we have a Carolyn Kendrick original, so keep your uh, ears open and ready for that. And finally, just in case you're trying to keep up with what movies we're watching, next week we're going to be covering Groundhog Day with Josh Condelman. What a delightful conversation that was. I am so excited to share that with you. All right, let's go talk about Goodfellas. Thanks. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. I'm so happy. We are talking about Goodfellas with Sarah Weinman, who's one of my favorite people. Also, this is our first Sarah to Sarah episode. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Sarah, it's wonderful to be on. Normally, when I meet another Sarah, I consume her because there can be only one, but you were allowed to live. So especially because we are both with H's. So we can really fight you to the death as a result. Exactly. Sarah Weinman, how do you make your living? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Sarah Weinman is a writer. You're in construction. <laughs> <laughs> they don't feel like you're in construction. Uh, do you want to tell us about your book? So Scoundrel, which will be out, its pub date is February 22nd of 2022. William F. Buckley, who founded the magazine National Review and had a column and was basically like the conservative pundit of the American mid-century. He did a great job debating James Baldwin one time. Just kidding. He was terrible. <laughs> he got his clock cleaned by James Baldwin. That is true. So in the early 1960s, he develops this epistolary friendship with a man on New Jersey's death row named Edgar Smith, who had been convicted a few years earlier for the murder of a 15-year-old girl named Victoria Zielinski in Bergen County, New Jersey. He was just really determined, I'm not going to die. I'm going to find every avenue. And at one point, he gives an interview to a friendly interviewer in town and mentions that a prison warden used to bring copies of various magazines, including the National Review, and that he no longer did. And this got Buckley's attention. And Buckley decides to give him a free subscription for life. And then they start corresponding. Oh, Buckley. <laughs> and then Buckley basically decides, I'm going to advocate for this guy. I believe that he didn't do it. 
and he has writing talent. And so he writes an article in Esquire and things kind of go off the rails. Hmm. Edgar will eventually get out. He will commit another crime and spend the rest of his life in prison. And so Scoundrel is basically about what are we really doing when we prioritize supposed literary talent on the altar of dead girls and women and the damage that we do to women all the time. Mm. I'm very excited for this book. And then the closest thing to have to a day gig is that I now write the crime column for the New York Times Book Review, which basically means I get to sit around and read mystery novels pretty much every day. <laughs> That's the America this liberal wants. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sarah Weinman, I look forward to hearing more about your experience with this movie in particular. But first, Sarah Marshall. You can call us Marshall and Weinman. I think I will. I think I'll do that. <laughs> I think that makes us sound like buddy coughs. I like it. Starsky and Hutch, Marshall and Weinman. Marshall, can you just give an overview about like what we're about to get into from a plot perspective, but also just from like a cultural phenomenon perspective? Like where did this come from? How did it happen, et cetera? I love it when I do this, when you're like, Sarah, like, what is this? movie about and what does it mean culturally in five minutes or less and i'm like put me in coach yeah <laughs> okay i'm so ready goodfellas is a movie i've seen probably 50 times i am one of those people who loves martin scorsese who is like marty marty made this choice i wonder how marty feels about this review of the irishman i think that he's one of those people like julia child or Jonathan Van Ness, where if you consume <laughs> his media, you just get the feeling that you have some kind of intimacy with him. That's a dinner party guest list that I would love to see. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> These three people know how to live. You would have like cocaine and lasagna, and then you would go ice skating. And I think that Scorsese is a director who is deeply, passionately beloved by men, partly because he does mafia movies and fun movies about organized crime and sex and getting away with stuff until you don't. And also because I think his movies are about intense homosociality and love between men. And this movie starts with the young Henry Hill. First, we see him having to dispose of a body in a very grisly way with his two best pals, Tommy D, played by Joe Pesci, and Jimmy the Gent, played by Robert De Niro. And then we flash back to him as a teenager in East New York, looking down at the cab stand like Kyle MacLachlan in Blue Velvet through the slats and looking at these mobsters and saying, I knew I wanted to be a part of them. And then we watch how he became a part of them. We have this beautiful, like about 15 minute opening overture that is itself like garlic sliced with a razor blade. It's just like scene, 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 scene. And then we cut ahead to Ray Liotta as fully grown Henry Hill. He has aged 15 years and Tommy has aged 45. <laughs> because that's how it works. <laughs> and it's Joe Pesci now. That's how it works. I feel like Joe Pesci, I think he was reluctant to take this role because he felt he was too old. And yes, but like, who cares? Nobody cares. I think I was watching this movie like for the seventh time when I was like, oh, that kid, when Henry gets pinched, that's supposed to be young Joe Pesci. Well, that doesn't make sense, but who cares? Whatever. This is a Joe Pesci movie. So the acts that we get are roughly, this is how we do it. <laughs> this is how we rob JFK and how we stick up semi-drivers. Here are all the guys in our crew. Here's how we bleed a restaurant dry. 
here's our basic organized crime lifestyle. Here's how we have all these angles, basically. Then meeting and courting his eventually wife, Karen, played by the amazing Lorraine Bracco. Then taking on a mistress and Karen finding out, having that act, and then trying to make things work when he ends up going to federal prison for four years. Which, you know, turns out to be kind of a party. Yeah. <laughs> they're just sort of like sitting around and eating good food and, and hanging out and having the run of the place. And you're just like, is this how is a federal prison supposed to work? Sure. They're enjoying their lockdown lifestyle. <laughs> it only gets messed up when he has to talk with his wife. Like that's oh, no. the sort of setting of like what's going on here. And I hope that if you're out there listening to this and you can't leave your house, that maybe tonight you make a stake and listen to Beyond the Sea. (laughs) (laughs) And then he gets out of prison. He is now dealing cocaine. And Paul Sorvino, who is his mentor, Polly, kind of his father figure with an organized crime, puts on his blue bathrobe so he can symbolize the Virgin Mary and then is like, listen, don't lie to me. Just don't deal coke. Don't do it. Don't do it. And Henry's like, all right. And then he does, obviously. This was the first time I fully realized that his rationale was not that like he's moral. It's just easier to get bagged for drugs. The Godfather has Don Corleone being like, everyone's peddling dope now, but I don't believe in it. I think it's dangerous. And Goodfellas is like, yeah, whatever. You know, (laughs) yeah, much less sentimental, which I have to imagine he was closer to reality. And then the final act is Jimmy organizing the Lufthansa heist. I love how this happens in this movie because in so many other movies, it would be the centerpiece of the whole thing. And in this, it's like a thing that happens off screen near the end. (laughs) Right. And we learn it's been pulled off when Ray Liotta is in the shower, hearing that his best buddy has pulled off maybe the biggest robbery of all time and going, Jimmy! (laughs) It's so good. I love it. I just watched that scene over and over. And then Jimmy deciding that he needs to whack every single one of his co-conspirators because he doesn't want to share the profits. And I assume he's paranoid about getting found out as well. Oh, and then also Tommy gets whacked because he killed too many people. But before he got whacked, he thought he was getting made. It's so sad. It's like the part where Drew Barrymore gets egged by her alleged prom date and never been kissed. (laughs) I know. Like Sissy Spacek getting the blood dumped on her and Carrie, but it's just, you know, a similar vibe. Yeah, I love that we both thought of Teen Girls at prom because that really is what it feels like. He puts on his little suit. Uh, bummer. Well, I mean, it's Goodfellas, not a teen movie, basically. So true. And it's got all the same emotional resonances. It's like, of yeah. course, it's a teen movie as only Marty could do. That's nice, too. Right. And it's about your friends turning on you. And yeah. The last day of Henry Hill's mobster life may 11th 1980 things have started to disintegrate we've seen the violence really escalate everyone's on coke ray liotta in these scenes looks like tom hulse in the ending of amadeus (laughs) and there's this helicopter following him around all day as he's doing errands and he's paranoid and we finally find out that it's narcs right so it's is it feds then federal narcotics officers and they basically catch him and bust his girlfriend who has a bunch of fucking mixing bowls full of cocaine (laughs) and have enough on him to put him away forever and so he's like all right why don't i tell you everything Mm -hmm. yeah because my friends are already trying to kill me also so 
might as well. And about him ending the movie in witness protection. And he has survived. And I put this movie in a trilogy with Casino and the Wolf of Wall Street, which are the movies of like, I rose to the top and I fucked on a mountain of cash and then I lost it all, but I'm alive. And that's all, folks. I am alive. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> now I'm giving speeches in Australia if you're Jordan Belfort. Yeah. New Zealand, because Australians at least could do a hard sell. And New Zealanders are just like too sincere ever to pump and dump a stock. It's like, I'm alive and now I'm going to start calling Nick Pileggi because he seems to be interested in my story and I'm never going to stop calling him. <laughs> I forget which of the behind the scene things I heard this in. I, no, I think it was uh, it was on Fresh Air. Ray Liotta was talking about seeing Henry Hill in like Venice, California, just like really fucked up on drugs a lot of the time, just like hanging out in the boardwalk and like leaning up against trees and mm. stuff. And I mean, it, that's such a sad end. I know he had struggles with addiction throughout his life and then especially at the end. But then just imagining Ray Liotta seeing him in Venice, California is like the strangest. Yeah, <laughs> but that's the thing. It's like, speaking of falls, it's like after all this happens and Henry Hill leaves witness protection and then he gets busted for drugs and goes back to prison and his marriage ends for good because, of course, he turns out that he had been physically abusing his wife and kids mm -hmm. for many, many, many years to the point where both of the kids wrote a memoir, mm. which I have not read. But apparently it's quite harrowing. Oh, I'm sure. And it came out in like 2004. And then he takes up with at least one other woman. The last one, I think, becomes his manager. And by the time he dies in, I think, 2012, it was a sad, shitty life. Mm. But he's immortal thanks to Marty. Mm. Yeah. And as Terry Gross brought up in that interview, it's funny, like she's talking with Ray Liotta about Goodfellas, which I imagine is like something a lot of people always want to do. And like Terry's like number one takeaway on Fresh Air is like, it's funny that your aspiration was to want to park these old guys' cars. <laughs> I thought that that was fantastic. Why, why, what is your relationship with this movie? Like, how did you exist with this movie before this conversation? Where does this live in your life? I don't have as strong a relationship as Sarah clearly does, which I, I love. I love how it's just, it's sort of like a big warm blanket that envelops you the way you were describing it. Mm, totally. I think my relationship a little more nebulous just because I always felt like I couldn't find a way in emotionally Mm. to gangster narratives it just felt a little apart like, there's a lot of violence it felt brutal it felt it just didn't seem like it was a language that i could speak in the way that i could with a lot of other different kinds of crime narratives hmm. and maybe it was just because it is so masculine centric mm. and that women don't really have like a big place in this narrative and crime stories are so often about dead girls and commodifying them mm. and this is a little, a little bit different but I have seen Casino and I have seen Wolf of Wall Street and I have seen Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and what I think of is like Marty's even more near-do-well sort of cousin from another family, Abel Ferrara, who I love, who is a, mm. a deeply problematic figure, but I will always defend Bad Lieutenant and Miss 45. Oh, I love Miss oh, yeah. 45. Oh my God. Right? <laughs> yeah. Just, I don't want to say that it's a perfect movie, but it is a movie I will always watch if it's on. Ms. 45 walked so a promising young woman could run or at least jog. Yeah. And just like Zoe Tamerl is like, man, I could write thousands of words. It's kind of surprising. I haven't, but I've always been a little too scared to do that. Mm. Like that's how fascinating and, and terrifying and sad a figure she is. But in any case, enough about Ferrara and more about Marty. <laughs> so I just felt like I, I didn't quite hop on the gangster train in the same way that other people did, but I think the older that I got and the more I was in middle age, the more 
some of these narratives started to make more sense to me. So I had not seen Goodfellas in, oh my God, probably since college when I queued it up a few weeks ago to prepare for talking to you guys. And I just, it was like right away, it's just amazing filmmaking. Like that first scene or the scene in the Copa, that big tracking shot as Henry Hill and Karen or really out in Lorraine Baracco are going through the back entrance and you see them and they come through and there are people standing around. And it's just like, it's such great cinematography. It's such great blocking. It's such great everything. And I just was like, this is such a feast of amazingness. And from that standpoint, it's just phenomenal, but it's also just from a great acting standpoint. You know, I mentioned the scene where Pesci thinks he's going to be made mm-hmm. and Robert De Niro, Jimmy is so happy. He's so, or at least he's professing to be happy. And I like that. We don't actually know, is he happy or is he pulling some con on Henry Hill and other people, you know, pretending that maybe something else is going on. And then when it happens, you're just like, Oh, it's so shocking. And it's so inevitable. And those are the best moments mm-hmm. where you don't want it to happen. Mm-hmm. You're surprised when it happens, but it's like, ugh, the narrative inevitability was always there. Mm-hmm. The human dynamic equivalent of like, if the iceberg scrapes the ship's hull this hard for this many compartments, then like the water will come in and it will sink. <laughs> and, you know, like the dynamics between these people, just, I, yeah, I think it feels so satisfying because you're like, ah, this hurts. And like, what else ever could have happened? Yeah, exactly. And I also love that at the breakfast and the diner where, Henry realizes that Jimmy is sending him off to be whacked on what he says is a job. The Florida job? Yes. The Tampa job. It's like, never go to Florida, Henry. We know this by now. He's sending him down to just get shot in a car. Right. (laughs) I love that he orders an English muffin. Yes. Because I think that ordering an English muffin in a diner is a real power move. And I like to do it sometimes. You know what I love about this movie? And I like accidentally watched Wolf of Wall Street this week, not meaning it to sort of be back to back with this. It just happens to you, man. It just found you, Alex. <laughs> it was just there. I watched it. I love that everyone's ugly. <laughs> except the wives who are keep. Well, no, except the main guy's wife who is keeping it tight. <laughs> yes. I love that in Martin Scorsese crime movies, everyone's sweaty and gross and haggard with the anxiety that comes with thinking that the other shoe is going to drop or like the stress of the job or whatever. Like, and again, I watched a Scorsese interview from around this time and he was like, I didn't want to make a gangster movie because there were however many gangster movies. It's a thing that I've done before, but like given the opportunity to like show what happens in the third act, essentially, like I would love that opportunity. And Wolf of Wall Street does that so well too like to come out of either of these movies or casino and think that this is a thing that you want to do you either have to be 15 years old or have been asleep for the third act because like everyone just sort of crumbles under their weight but there are a surprising number of people who are if they're not literally 15 years old and they're 15 years old in emotional age or they did fall asleep in the third act right (laughs) no totally and i want to know more about that because that is for sure a thing what bud schulberg wrote in a afterward for i think the 50th anniversary edition or thereabouts of his amazing and brutal novel what makes sammy run Mm. which if you haven't read it please read it it's like one of the greatest satires of hollywood Mm. it was published in like 1941 Nathaniel West read it before he and his wife, Eileen of my sister Eileen fame, got into a car. And of course, the car spun out of control. They both died. (laughs) So it was just like this absolutely venal satire of 
rising up and striving and stomping people on the way down until, you know, eventually the tide turns. And Schulberg would encounter these young people when he would give lectures who were just like, oh, I love Sammy. He's great. I want to be just like him. And he just was like, oh, no, that was exactly what I did not intend. Which is like, I guess, an inevitability. And that makes me think of Oliver Stone making Wall Street and saying the same thing about how many men would come up to him over the years and be like, I love Wall Street and inspired me to work on Wall Street. And he was like, the movie that ends with everyone being arrested or testifying against each other. (laughs) It's like how many guys who were responsible for the 2008 crash watched Wall Street when they were young? Yeah. I would actually like to know. How many people saw Platoon and then joined up because of that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to say that men are stupid, but I think I just did. I'm sorry. Some of them are. (laughs) You know, it's the Breaking Bad phenomenon too. Like a lot of people who like walked out of these things going like, that guy's the hero for sure. Trust me. Because I was watching a very different television show or film. Yeah. Or like Mad Men. People are like, it's about this wonderful, classy, debonair guy named Don Draper. I think he's really got his life together. Sarah Marshall, what brought you back to this movie 50 times? Like, what do you love about it? What warms your heart? I already know there are men who are friends. Oh, yeah. So that's a point up for you. But what else is there? <laughs> men who are friends is the key thing. We just talked about Titanic. So I'm going to reuse a phrase, but I think it's equally relevant here. This is Martin Scorsese, one of our greatest directors at the height of his powers. Movies literally are what they are, partly because of his influence. Mm. And so I think this is the point at which he has the means to do all of the stuff he's doing, which is very ambitious, and to work on the scale he's wanting to work at, and then to like somehow compress what today could be four seasons of TV into about two hours and 15 minutes. We were texting earlier today about how like the last act of this movie feels like cocaine. It's when the coke kicks in. So like what's not to love there? (laughs) Oh yeah, especially that sequence where he's trying to get the au pair, the nanny to, oh my, and the the whole, what is it, the baked ziti? He's like, I'm going to cook all this meat today. All of it. (laughs) And then his poor brother. I mean, I keep thinking about that. His poor brother, who's just like, his only job is to keep stirring. He's there for hours upon hours upon hours. And he's like, I'm so grateful and I'm so honored to be doing this. And you're like, are you though? Mm -hmm. The Coke does a really interesting thing too, for it being the third act where it's like the Coke actually, because it comes in and becomes the star of the movie in one way or another, one could argue if you're watching this movie as a person who leaves thinking that it's not a cautionary tale about the mob, one could argue that it's a cautionary tale about cocaine, right? Like that if you did all the mob stuff right and didn't get over your head on coke. Karen! (laughs) (laughs) You could actually make out just fine. I got things organized with these guys. And I mean, knowing that Marty himself had a severe drug problem and nearly died in the late 70s, of course it's a cautionary tale, and of course he's going to put that in, it's like steroidal cocaine, and that <laughs> yes. happens again in Wolf of Wall Street, like it's like coke is everywhere, and it's just like, I don't know how you could watch this and not feel repulsed, and yet many appear to not be repulsed. I am so thankful to the Virgin Mary herself that our dear friend Marty did not die of a heart attack at the age of 49, you know? Yes. What were the odds, honestly? And I became obsessed with this movie. I was trying to remember, like, when did this really hit for me? Because I definitely saw it in high school. And it was just so much happened that by the last half, I was just like, I'm tired. Then I really got obsessed with it. And I think the fall of 2017, 
which was around also the same time that I became obsessed with Titanic as an adult and really came back to it and was watching it again and again. I think it's relevant that that was a time of figuring out what is life under and after the Trump administration. And they're both movies that are obviously highly relevant. <laughs> Although I hate it when people call Trump a mobster because if he were a character in Goodfellas, I feel like he would have been whacked yes. in like <laughs> within two weeks of starting work for these guys. You know, like I don't think he has that kind of competence. He's the guy who owns the clothing store and has the ad on TV. Oh, Maury, Maury's wigs. Yeah, Maury. Yeah. I definitely thought of Trump when the ad was on. I can see that. I do feel like the wigs are probably a better product than Trump University. Possibly. <laughs> Trump state. They are built to withstand hurricane winds. <laughs> I just want to say like about that ad, a story that I love about this. And we'll put in the show notes a link to an article going deeper into it because this is a wonderful story. But basically the Maury's Wigs ad has this very authentic local ad feel to it because Marty was watching TV one night and he saw a local ad by a businessman somewhere in the tri-state area who did, I think, like he winterized your windows for you or something like that. And there was this ad that showed money like pouring out the window to symbolize what was happening if you weren't winterizing. And our friend Marty was like, that's perfect. Find out who made that ad. He can make the Maury's wigs ad. And so it turned out it was the guy who ran the company. Oh my God. And so they just had this guy do the Maury's wigs ad and he had full creative control on a Scorsese movie. Makes me so happy. Is there an ad like that in Casino? Because there's one in Wolf of Wall Street. And I was wondering if that just is a motif hmm. in these. Well, we have the Ace show. So we have like that kind of media within media thing happening. <laughs> yes. Because, you know, how in this movie, it culminates in him being in court. And then when he's in court, it's when he breaks the fourth wall and starts talking directly to you the same way as right. in Wolf of Wall Street. The ad actually serves a similar function right. where like. At the end, we have this ad playing where Jordan Belfort is kind of explaining basically how rich he is and how you can buy into whatever his sales scheme is. And it's like very much sort of a cable access ad yeah. or an ad you'd see on TV. And then he gets arrested within the ad. Yeah. That's where we see him get arrested. I'm like, no, oh, Marty, you're so smart. By fucking Kyle Chandler. By coach. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Weidman, you were saying earlier that like a lot of crime media revolves around the dead girl in one way or another. And this is an outlier. Like, how is this movie an outlier with regard to how it deals with crime media? The women in it, they seem to be both inhabiting stereotype and also circumventing it. I think a lot about Lorraine Bracco's portrayal of Karen, mm. because as I said, like I hadn't watched Goodfellas and maybe two and a half decades or something. I'm a Jewish woman living in New York City, and I'm enough in the Jewish community that the five towns has a very specific meaning, in part because there are very predominant Jewish communities in the 50s and 60s. They weren't necessarily as religiously observant as they are now. So someone like Karen growing up, she was probably you know, pretty well-to-do, conservative denomination, maybe reform, but I'm not 100% sure about that. So obviously marrying someone like Henry Hill, it would not have been viewed as you were excommunicated from the family if she had grown up Orthodox. Instead, there's this big lavish wedding that's like half Italian, half Jewish. And it's just, it was just sort of very fascinating to me because there's this whole other dynamic that could be even further unpacked 
that I was particularly hyper aware of. Hmm. And also just because Karen's still alive. Hmm. You know, we don't know what her real name is. And I think about, it's like, what kind of life is she living? Does she have any connection to Judaism anymore? Did that completely get denuded after she became a mobster's wife? I just think about her in particular as this fascinating figure. And, you know, Lorraine Bracco is not Jewish, obviously. And she was cast, and I know this from Glenn Kenny's wonderful book on Goodfellas called Made Men, which if you haven't read it, I would strongly and highly recommend it. It has a lot of dishy related to how the movie got made and who was involved and who kind of got shoved aside credit-wise and the like. So that's a whole other thing. But it's like, what comparable actress who is Jewish could have played Karen? Because Marty essentially... I think knew within meeting Bracco in like two minutes that he wanted to cast her. Mm-hmm. It's like, would hmm. casting somebody Jewish have made this a better role or, or is Bracco just so good that we have to just put that aside? So, you know, I don't have a good answer to that question. I don't think I necessarily want to, but I'm glad that she's in it playing Karen and she does it like so brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Hmm. This is getting more into like a what is America question. (laughs) Going for the easy question, Sarah. Yes, always. (laughs) I would imagine intermarriage between a Jewish woman and a Catholic guy would be easier in some ways than intermarriage between a Jewish woman and a Protestant guy because Catholics are also like otherized and seen as having an ethnicity in America. Yeah, it depends. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of my stock answer about everything uh-huh. <laughs> but it, i mean i was raised orthodox and i know that if i had married a catholic guy my parents wouldn't have been so thrilled about this really because <laughs> it's a competing religion and they grate parmesan on all the meatballs yeah that's true <laughs> i don't know i'll get back to you on that <laughs> what do you think bronco does so well in her portrayal of karen in this movie Well, I think partly she just gets at a deep level what it is to find someone so enticing and so alluring that even when they are behaving in ways that are utterly monstrous, I mean, that scene where she's pointing the gun at him Mm -hmm. and you actually don't know, like most of the time when I'm watching scenes like that, I have a pretty good idea or reading scenes like that. I have a pretty good idea. Eh, No one's a danger here or whatever. But that scene, there was real danger. Like I really did not know was she going to fire the gun or was something else going to happen? And then, of course, he wrestles it away and it becomes this incredibly violent scene, even though a lot of it was not as present as it could have been. But it just like the menace and the dread of it was just like really palpable. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like she just got that. Or the scene near the end in Gowanus, where you don't know if she is going to turn that corner, if something really horrible is going to happen and what Mm. Jimmy intends for her. And people are still arguing about that scene Hmm. 30 plus years later. It's like, oh, did he mean to kill her or did he not mean to kill her? And I'm just like, no, of course he meant to kill her. (laughs) To me, it's obvious. Yeah. But the fact that we're having that argument shows the brilliance of Scorsese's directing Hmm. and what he Hmm. intended and how he shot that and what he was trying to convey and how it comes down. And, you know, it really was like, real horror movie dread in a way that frankly a lot of horror movies don't know how to do anymore Mm. yeah i agree there's so many scenes where you're like on a knife's edge because you just don't know what the dynamic is going to be between these characters who really have a wide range of potential actions and the dynamic pivots in the moment yeah Yeah. you're just like oh shit another thing's happening 
that's a very tense scene and it's also very funny if you've watched it 50 times because it's Robert De Niro going like (laughs) (laughs) Sarah's emulating Robert De Niro's directions with his hands I don't know like how would you describe that facial expression we see a lot from him in this where he's like like what is that my father had that facial expression a lot of the time which was like I don't know what is going it's kind of an agreement it's like you're squinting your entire face yes it's like a grimace squint or something (laughs) squintus a knowing grimace squint Yeah, something we also haven't that I kind of in my summary didn't touch on specifically is that one of the main elements of Henry and Karen's courtship is that a guy who lives across the street from her makes an advance sexually and she says no and he throws her out of the car. And so Henry marches over and beats the shit out of this guy with a gun. And Alex, I know that one of your favorite performances in this movie is the friend (laughs) of that guy who goes, don't shoot. (laughs) Right. Don't, don't shoot him in the wife of the mobster who says, but I love that car. I can't imagine the conversations these people have with people where they're like, I was in a Scorsese movie and then they have to explain who they were. And that just must be amazing every time. Right. <laughs> Guy who went, don't shoot. But you just know that they have some cred, even if it's like that role. For sure. If they're in a room and I'm with them, they're the cooler person easily every time. Right. Like how Joe Bob Briggs was the slots manager in Casino. Like he'll have that feather in his cap forever. <laughs> right. God bless John Bloom. <laughs> oh my gosh. We need to talk about Michael Imperioli too. Yes. Right? Spider. Spider. Yes. Okay, Sarah, I'm sure you remember this. Do you remember Michael Imperioli in an episode of Law and Order from like 1996? <laughs> Where he murdered a model who he was in love with. Honestly, no, but I probably watched it. (laughs) He was a chauffeur. He was a limo driver who started dealing coke to models on the side. And then there was this one model who he had a big crush on and the mob made him kill her because she knew too much. Oh, no. And so imagine me at 12 being like, he's so cute and shy. And he fucking killed that girl. All right, wrap it up. So that's that was my introduction to Michael Imperioli. What is Michael Imperioli? Let's talk about that, because this is a very sexy man, right? He aged 20 years between decades. Yes. Like every decade, he ages 20 years, which I find fascinating. And that's a huge feat. And I understand that time is difficult. Mm -hmm. No, but I mean, I watched an episode of this podcast on The Sopranos that he does with another cast member. And I think you're right. Like, I think he's in his 50s, but he looks older, but also somehow not. It's very weird. Totally. I find it sexy. And I think that some men do that well, where they get older, it looks very well. But like he went from like 13 in this movie to 30 in The Sopranos to 60 (laughs) today. And I don't understand how the time he worked, but that's just what happened. I was going to say cigarettes, but that may not be correct. He's very stoic. He seems like he has a lot of feelings. Yes. This is all based on nothing. Like this is all based on just seeing him and stuff. I don't know what he's actually like. Listen to his podcast. I'm sure this will confirm all of your suspicions. Mm. Oh, I'm happy to know. Sarah, what's your take on who, who and what he is? His face sure has a lot of feelings, right? Yes, it does. Yeah, I think he just he has this intense soulfulness his pull on me personally makes me understand why people felt the way they did about rudolph valentino who apparently was capable of causing stampedes wow i would never have thought to equate michael imperioli with rudolph valentino i need to ponder this for a while (laughs) yeah i'm just throwing some pictures out there i like it you know 
But yeah, this cast is so deep that it's amazing that Michael Imperial is in here and you can kind of forget about him. Right. He has that one memorable scene. And yep. when I was watching it, I just was like, oh, it's the bartender, whatever. And it's like, he looks familiar. I'm going to look up who he is later. And then, of course, everything goes down with Joe Pesci and his bravura and then just shoots out what is his knees or his ankle. His or foot, then, yeah. which he really needs in his line of work. And that scene is so interesting, right? Because, like, ultimately, it's two scenes that take place at this bar, right? Like, one is he gets shot in the foot. Mm-hmm. The next time we see him, he talks back. And he gets murdered. Yeah, it's why don't you go fuck yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is just horrendous. But I don't know what scene happens in between those two scenes, but it's really interesting that they're standalone scenes Mm -hmm. that are so close to each other. Do you know what I mean? Like, this isn't like a callback later in the movie. This is like the next night and something kind of insignificant happens in between that. Well, it's not insignificant because Martin Scorsese made it, but like something sort of minor happens in between those two things. And then we see the payoff. This is in the like, the tire is wobbling and the nuts might be loose (laughs) section of the movie. And I think if I were Marty, I would probably to signify that like cast the most Bambi looking wise guy I could find. And like, that's this guy, I think. I also, I mean, he would have gotten killed no matter what kind of spin he put on this, but I, I love how he feels like he's learning the etiquette of how to kind of play ball with these guys. And I feel like the scene may be called for a kind of like, Fuck off, Tommy, as opposed to like, go fuck yourself. (laughs) All the gravitas and all of the post Sopranos, post everything that would come. I mean, how do you know that when something like that is going to happen, that your career is going to take off in a particular stratosphere? You can't know. And yet I think subconsciously some actors do know, and that's why they achieve that success. Mm -hmm. And I think Imperioli knew on some really base subconscious level that this was going to catapult him into greater things. So he was going to milk it for all it was worth and boy did he ever yeah. <laughs> and it's a great scene and it's super rewatchable as a result too mm-hmm. yeah i think he's great in this and there are like 150 sopranos cast members in this movie too which is amazing as well it feels like they just brought good fellas to the casting session and they were like just all of these guys let's put them in yeah or you just go to the Goodfellas store and you're like, oh, we have to have Freddy No-Nos. <laughs> oh, and Carbone. We got to have Carbone. Got to get this Imperioli guy. He's good in everything. Bracco, come on. I know it's a splurge, <laughs> but it's worth it. She can play a doctor. Wouldn't it be funny if we had a character be the therapist? That's so <laughs> <laughs> You can do TV. What do you think just like works best about this movie Mm. why is this the scorsese movie that stands as tall as it does against a bunch of other great movies i mean this is a giant movie but it's like a manageably giant movie like it really kind of speeds by if you're invested which it's hard not to be i mean this is a movie about power and the allure of power also i think about men in america and what their deal is and i just love that i feel like there are too many movies about men in an unthinking way, you know, that are like Mark Wahlberg has to save the president of the United States <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, that really involves a lot of thought. <laughs> <laughs> that said, I am a fan of White House Down, but movies actively about masculinity and the relationships men have with each other, I think, are so crucial. And so to me, one of the key things about this is like Henry originally wants to be part of the mobsters, A, because his dad beats him with a belt and B because it's a means to power. And then C, I think just as much as B, if not more so, because it's like, it's this brotherhood, it's this fatherhood initially 
of all these guys in bowling shirts who love this little kid who will do all these useful tasks for them. And he gets to grow up becoming more and more valuable to them and be part of this giant extended family. Hmm. Yeah, I want to sort of pick up on that, too, because I have a number of men in my life who, frankly, they don't have a lot of male friends that they're close to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, women, we are socialized to have lots of friends at varying degrees of emotional level that we can be close to, that we can talk to, that we can communicate what's really going on. And it's kind of tragic because they bottle things up and they Mm -hmm. have their emotions come out in really potentially toxic ways. And so I think Goodfellas really deals with all of that, both successful and wildly unsuccessful father-son relationship, fraternal relationships, son with their son relationships, even like grandparental relationships and friends and enemies. So you really do see the full gamut of male relationships and how they can be nurturing, but also how they can be stultifying and ultimately how they can be lethal. And to see even that represented on screen in a way that feels complicated and messy and bloody, but also emotionally true, when you're not allowing yourself to do that in your own life, that's really powerful. The thing that stood out this time that I don't think I really noticed or paid too much attention to in the past is when 
we have this scene where they're out with their girlfriends and they're talking about Sammy Davis Jr. And Mm -hmm. there's essentially this exchange where one of the women talks about how Sammy Davis Jr. She could understand how people could find him attractive. Something along those lines. She says, I could really understand how a white girl could fall for him. That's what she says. Yeah. Thank you. Specifically that. And then there's this exchange that happens where it's like, you know, Tommy doesn't want it to sound like that's something that she would be into because it could reflect whatever. There's this scene that is, first of all, racist but second of all shows how like deeply insecure all of the men are Mm -hmm. (laughs) and without martin scorsese going like let me tell you a little bit about their insecurities and their backstory it's Mm -hmm. such like a glancing piece of almost explaining just the color of everything they're around but really at the end of the day it's just like these men are not built on a very solid foundation. <laughs> no, they are not. And it was especially fascinating to watch that scene when I did, because I was listening parallel to the most recent season of You Must Remember This, which mm. is the wonderful Hollywood podcast hosted by Karina Longworth. And the season, which just wrapped up, was all about Sammy Davis Jr. Mm. and Dean Martin, the ways in which Davis was treated by Frank Sinatra and Dino and Peter Lawford and and just the way that he craved and tried to cultivate white audiences. Mm. And when he married the wife, who was, I think, obliquely not directly referenced in that scene by Brit, it was doomed because there was no way that they could get past the interracial aspect when it was still illegal Mm, in the early 60s. Like Loving versus Virginia hadn't happened yet. Mm. So that's also the context in which the scene is going on through we haven't had a lot of the civil rights movement or it's happening in the background and the mobsters are like yeah whatever uh, nothing to do with nothing right, to do right. with us they're not very involved in the fight yeah. they're already dealing with prejudice against italians we can't make money off of it so we can't deal with it exactly i want to see a scorsese movie about a gangster who's also really invested in the civil rights fight <laughs> That would be, that's the movie. Come on, Marty. There's some obscure little gangster out there. He's got it. He's got a decade. (laughs) That's what The Sopranos is built on, right? Where it's like, here's what that fractured foundation looks like over the course of seven seasons. You know, and obviously The Godfather did this in a broader and sort of bigger and sometimes more oblique way. But like, I think Goodfellas probably started the trend that we would see in like prestige television about a decade later about you know tedious men and the reasons they're like that yeah the whole anti-hero prestige tv Mm. thing yeah I, i think you're right and i don't know if it's coming back it's just because we're interrogating all facets of whiteness and white maleness and watching goodfellas it was a really good way for me to sort of keep going with my own personal interrogation of white male issues Hmm. because, Hmm. you know, we can't get rid of all white men. That's not feasible, nor is it something that any of us should want. It's illegal, so. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there's a type of masculinity that we have to understand in order to excavate the insecurities mm-hmm. that are paramount to what created so someone like a mailer or or the good fellas it's like they're so invested in certain narratives about how to be a man mm. it's like you have to commit actual murder to make something new narratively and they're so vulnerable that they might just stab you you might say the right. wrong thing and they just they'll just have to stab you like oh no yeah. you you said i wasn't as good as Dostoevsky. like <sighs> like what People say that to me all the time, okay? (laughs) 
I think about the fact that like Martin Scorsese was just like a sick little boy. His biography is that like he like couldn't go outside very much. And, like, he looked out his window onto his neighborhood to see what that was like and like didn't like really felt like he fit in. Oh my God, rear window, but Martin Scorsese is the star? Yes. Whoa. But he's just looking at mobsters and he's like, I'll never tell anyone about all the murders <laughs> you're committing. It's fine by me. Yeah, oh he's just looking at a bunch of mobsters on like yellow trucker speed. It's like just a sad situation. But yeah, I just see him he has that remove enough to go like oh like these guys are tough but they're also really fucked up that's such a beautiful perspective that he brought to us yeah i also feel like what i love about scorsese generally is that the man is made out of movies oh yeah his love of the art form that he's working in is so intense and beautiful and that's why when people on the internet get mad at him over like marvel movies it's just like (laughs) do you understand that he loves movies in a way that you are constitutionally incapable of even grokking no one loves movies like marty loves movies I think I first got it when I saw him talking on a TCM thing about why pan and scan is the worst thing in the world. Pan and scan is the worst thing in the world. Right. But like, I didn't know that before seeing him talk about it. And he just became so visibly upset that I was like, all right, yes. And that behind the scenes thing, Thelma Schoonmaker, the editor of this film, and I think all of his films, with the exception of a few, was so giddily talking about how much she enjoyed editing jump cuts in the third Uh act. She was like, I just love that we could jump around in so many things. We don't get to do that very often. It's jump, jump, jump. (laughs) (laughs) You're so lovely. Alex, can you talk about like whatever you find most interesting about that final, like, you know, the crumbling of everything sequence that we see? Oh, man. I know so many people who have been at the end of their luck and they were the last people to know about it. We're with Henry Mm -hmm. on his last day of being a gangster. That's what they call this section of the movie. Like your last day of being a gangster. And he doesn't know it yet. And so we're just like watching his whole day in which he's bouncing around to his... um, His mixtape, his awesome (laughs) mixtape. We're we're bouncing around to his awesome mixtape, but like his his like various tasks and chores for the day and like none of them are romantic. Monster line of coke, crumpled up brown bag full of guns. (laughs) He trusted that brown bag that was carrying those guns way too much for how much weight was in that bag. You know, he has to basically get drugs from point A to point B. He has to take his babysitter who's helping smuggle drugs in for mm-hmm. him to get her lucky hat because she left her lucky hat. Right. Just like his day sucks so bad. Nothing like a day of driving around Long Island. That's what I always say. <laughs> and it's cut to like a Roxy music song, <laughs> is right? It? What is the song that's playing? It starts off with Jump Into the Fire by Harry Nielsen. God, yeah. And then it Magic Bus at one point, Memo from Turner. We're just like hearing his brain get mushier. Manish boy, I think like man. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. When he like does that line at Sandy's. Yeah. I want to add that like this movie is I think at heart a musical, and that's another thing I love about Scorsese. I think he's like in his heart of hearts making a musical. Sometimes every song that plays in this is telling you what's happening in some very direct way, and I love that. And I also love how much girl group music is in it. Yeah. This movie overshadows Casino unfairly. I think Casino goes deeper and harder about how much it will fuck up your life to pursue power and how pursuing absolute power with your buddies will make you no longer buddies, essentially. (laughs) It's also more brutal because 
the relationship, the romantic relationship doesn't survive it and didn't really have a chance. And I think it's so interesting that this movie, despite how things played out in real life, depicts this like pretty strong relationship between Henry and Karen. Very damaged and it's supremely fucked up, but she stuck by him because she was still attracted to him, which, (laughs) yeah, relatable. Just there's some spark that even when you're enduring the worst of it, around with them trying to move guns and hiding drugs and flushing it down the toilet. Stuffing a gun into your panties. Yeah. We've all been there. Basically, everything falls down when he's about to take the babysitter to get her hat. That's when the cops swoop in and then they're raiding the house and Karen flushes all the coke that they have hidden there down the toilet. And so Henry gets bailed out after Karen's mother puts up her house for whatever you do to get a bail bond. And then he comes home and he's like, all right, let's get that Coke. And then we're going to head out on the open road and sell a bunch of Coke and finds out that Karen has flushed it. And then, of course, and oh, is he pissed? Yes. And has an absolute meltdown and really just like implodes like a dying star. And we have the wonderful line. That was all the money we had, Karen. Yes. And. (laughs) If you had been thinking rationally, like not being addled with Coke, maybe you would have realized that this was the correct decision for her to flush it down the toilet. If that's your only (laughs) nest egg, that's the choice you made. And you made it boldly. True. Some people buy antiques. But (laughs) to me, it's really a defining choice that like he collapses. She's collapsing, too. They're both crying hysterically, but clinging to each other through the night and end up going into witness protection together again to survive because they're both fucked in this lifestyle. But the casino ending is that, you know, your wife goes and dies in a hallway. Mm. (laughs) And that's true to life as each of these had unfolded to a certain point. But I think, I don't know, there's something maybe wish fulfillment-y about saying that a marriage can make it through this entire story. You described the plot acts when talking about act one, two, and three, but like the other ways to see how the acts are split up are like before Karen courting Karen and being married to Karen. Yes. And like, if you could look at those acts as like, or before I came around being courted by Henry and marrying Henry, seeing this movie through the lens of these different phases in this relationship are also are fascinating to your point. Mm. Why do you think it's able to withstand all of this, you know, for better or worse. I mean, I think that the movie makes sense through Karen's perspective in a way that it wouldn't without her because we get to identify with her and identify with being seduced. I love the scene, the famous Copacabana shot that Sarah was talking about where we have this, I think like two and a half minute long tracking shot going through the kitchen, which is wonderful. And then they make a table for Henry and Karen, oh my God, right at the front so they can see Henny Youngman, which I guess would get girls wet in 1964. <laughs> and <laughs> that was how he was known. Yeah. <laughs> at least it wasn't Uncle Milty. <laughs> well, then he just would have taken her backstage, I assume. Um, and that would have been the end of that. But they sit down, this magical moment has coalesced, and she looks at him and says, what do you do? And he's like, I'm in construction. Which is perfect. And she feels his hand and is like, they don't feel like they're in construction. And he goes, "Ah, I'm a union delegate. And then you can see her kind of like looking at him for a second and then looking over at Henny Youngman. And she's just like, 
whatever. You know, just like, yeah, I accept. I believe you. <laughs> I'll make the math work. I don't care. I want to believe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Henry Hill was a real person. Karen Hill was a real person. Some of the names are changed, but it so inhabits its cinematic universe so totally that you can look up what everybody was doing during the events that transpired in the movie and after and read all about it. And sure, I did that, but it doesn't matter. Like that's how good a movie it is that it succeeds on the terms that Scorsese set out. It's its own world. Exactly. There are two things that I think is amazing about how Scorsese does adaptations. And one is that so much of the original text will end up being executed word for word, either through what people are saying or through the little details that we're watching be filmed. And I feel like that's very contrary to how Hollywood usually works with adaptation. I feel like you finding a bear in the woods, like a dead bear, and you're like, cool, let's take off all of the flesh and then take the skeleton and then put a bunch of clay on it. And that's our adaptation (laughs) of this book. And Scorsese's like, oh my gosh, look at this bear. We're going to have bear stew. We're going to have bear jerky. We're going to wear bear shoes, bear vests, bear hats. Like we're going to use every ounce of this bear that we possibly can. And then also to both be really faithful to a text and then to create a narrative that feels well realized and also that they're tragedies. The inevitability that we feel is like, the feeling of a Shakespearean tragedy. You're just like, all of this had to happen, like you were saying. But I'm sure that just knowing whatever Marty was studying in high school, I'm sure informed the structure of what this became. Yeah. And, you know, let's not also discount mm-hmm. Nick Pelleggi's mm-hmm. original book, Wise Guy, which sets out this narrative initially. And Scorsese got a copy and was immediately courting Pelleggi to try to get option the rights even though there was like no money involved the plug he's like yeah it's got to be scorsese's imagine being the person who turned down marty i mean i'm sure people turn down marty all the time how sad (laughs) right i mean that seems like a terrible idea but Pelleggi said that while the movie was filming, De Niro would call him five times a day to ask him questions about about, uh, his character. And he was like, I thought it was weird. And then I realized that was just part of his process. And then it was nice to get calls from Robert De Niro. I mean, my favorite story is the fact that Henry Hill would call Pelleggi and he often wouldn't pick up. So he'd end up talking to Nora Ephron and they got to be buds (laughs) because he just liked talking to Nora and she loved talking to him. Oh, my God. It's so good. What's your pitch to get someone to watch Goodfellas who has not seen Goodfellas before, who's on the fence? How do you reel someone in? My pitch for it is that it's fun. And if you don't find it fun, then that's okay. And you shouldn't watch it if it's not fun for you. But like at heart, this is a movie that I think was meant to be enjoyed. It's also meant to be harrowing and distressing and uncomfortable. But there has to be some joy ride in it for the whole experience to work. When people complain about Scorsese, I feel like They're complaining about the boyfriend that they had who maybe wasn't that great, who loves Scorsese. I mean, some people are just complaining about Scorsese, but I think that like wrapped up in that is the complaint that like he feels inevitable. It's like you have to watch his movies because they're part of the canon. And I think nothing robs art of joy like putting it in a canon. It's like Scorsese's (laughs) fun. I think he's fun. You might find him fun. My answer would just be this is a profoundly wonderful piece of entertainment. And that's two hours and some odd that you will not only be glad that you spent that time, but you will want to revisit it and just take in the sheer joy of seeing 
great cinema. Mm-hmm. And that's like the length of the average Marvel movie now. So this isn't even a particularly long movie anymore. I think it's less. Right. <laughs> so there you go. This is just a normal sized movie at this point. There is a dad in this movie and it is it's Henry Hill's dad. And he sucks ass. He sucks. He's not great. There's so many dads in this movie. I think they're all dads basically. Yeah, except Karen. <laughs> there are dads in this movie, so we know who the fathers yeah. are. Sarah's who in your view is the daddy? I want to nominate Carbone, and he's the guy who never knows what's going on and speaks Italian most of the time, so he's like warming up the car <laughs> after <laughs> Tommy has killed Maury finally. And then Jimmy's like, all right, chop him up. And so Carbone goes to like chop him up. And Tommy's like, no, not here. Like drive us away and then chop him up. And he's like, all right. And then he's warming up the car. And they're like, stop warming it. Just drive. It's You don't have to warm up the car. There's a corpse in it. I identify so much with Carbone in any group task setting. I will always misunderstand something in a spectacular way several times. And he's great. And oh, God, we had, by the way, Samuel L. Jackson is in this movie. He sure is. <laughs> yes. You know, speaking of how deep the cast runs. Right. Jesus Christ. And also, we haven't mentioned the fantastic Layla sequence when we see all the bodies yes. turning up. And Carbone has one of the most memorable moments in that where we find him in a meat truck. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Throughout the entire Trump administration, I was just waiting, like I feel like many were, for some Layla sequence. Oh, yeah. I was like, surely, I was like, I grew up on this movie, surely the chips will fall and we'll get this sequence and justice will be served. And uh, yeah, I'm still waiting. But the Layla sequence is so iconic that like that to me is just when it's like, that's when the shit hits the fan. But this movie keeps going for like yeah, a half hour. Yeah, it's like whatever, after. a better Clapton, but we can keep the Layla sequence. Yeah, we're skimming the good stuff off the top. We're clarifying Clapton. <laughs> and Layla sounds like it sounds like the soundtrack of like a walk of shit. <laughs> it totally is. It's a feeling of like you're hungover. It's like six in the morning. You're walking, you know, over a bridge. You slept with the wrong person. Totally. You've got some glitter on your neck. <laughs> yeah. And then to set it to this, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> the juxtaposition is so ironic, but it doesn't like slap you. It's such a subtle irony. I mean, I feel like someone today would be tempted to do one of those slapping you with irony things. So it would be like the Hollow Notes song. It's like you make my dreams come true. Do, oh, do, that one. Sure. Yeah, 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 what I think of his keyboard cat song. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, who's your daddy? Oh, Paul. Ah, that was my choice, too. He In these interviews I was watching, Paul Servino talks about how he worked on that role for two months. And he was like, I was just looking for it and I couldn't figure it out. And then, you know, I was working on it. I, was trying, I didn't think I could do it. And then I was like walking by the mirror and I saw Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Polly looks like all babies. <laughs> he does. He looks like a 49-year-old baby, basically, throughout this entire yeah. movie. But I love him so much. And I got that scene where they've hit the end of their relationship and he gives Henry the money. But then he says, and now I got to turn my back on you. Like, oh, it's so good. But he just, he does what he has to do. But you know what? Boundaries. More of us could say that. Wouldn't it be great if he could just be like, now I got to turn my back on you. He said what the expectations were. Mm -hmm. They were transgressed and then he enforced his boundaries. You're right, Sarah. It's beautiful. Let's also add that he's in a restaurant cooking an entire pan of sausages for himself. (laughs) So that's where I want to be when I'm at that age. 
Uh, Sarah Weidman, who who is your choice? Well, I was going to say Paul also, but I also think just for a slightly darker turn that Henry's dad is kind of the dad mm. of the film because without <laughs> his violence, without his lack of ambition, you know, without his own stultified existence, hmm. you wouldn't have Henry Hill looking for alternative father figures wow. in the neighborhood. Hmm. And he's constantly trying to fill that void for the rest of the movie because he can't get it at home. And then he just repeats the same mistakes that his own father made in abusing his own family. So sorry to go for the dark choice, but kind of have to. I love the dark choice. That's why we're friends. Yeah. (laughs) And to that point, I think that really you could say that that is the father of organized crime, right? Because we have to have things like the mafia because people need parallel power structures if they can't get protection, quote unquote, legitimately. If you need to use force and violence to protect yourself, then like you'll develop a culture around that. And it'll be lame to waste six aprons on someone who's been shot. (laughs) 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 All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much for listening, my friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Sarah Weinman for being a part of this. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick who produced the show. She is our music director. Also, like I said, she has an original song in this episode. That song is called God and Everyone. So Carolyn got a keyboard that was was very specific for making songs for these episodes for the podcast she produces. And (laughs) she'd set out to use it like a long time ago, but there have just been so many issues with getting it set up with like driver issues with computer issues. And she wanted me to know that she wrote this song while slowly losing it trying to get this keyboard to work which you can hear uh, in the song I feel I feel vibe wise it lines up with what was going on while she was writing <laughs> I love it anyway it's called God and Everyone you can find music from past episodes and the music of You Are Good Volume 1 uh, it's streaming or you can find it on Bandcamp it's an album by Carolyn as well and she also has an EP called Tear Things Apart thank you so much to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats to the show. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. I'm back on TikTok after a little break. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, next week we're going to talk about Groundhog Day with Josh Gondelman. It was a delightful conversation. Uh, You can support us on Patreon. You get bonus episodes like I've said before. And uh, I think that's all you need to know right now. Hey, you. You right there listening. You are good. Thank you.